Hosanna the highest, amen. Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. As you turn to Luke chapter 10, just a reminder, uh, next week is Easter. We encourage you to come out and celebrate the Lord's resurrection with us and invite people who may not have a church home of their own to attend. And I also encourage you to join us for our our 9 o'clock hour when we'll be having a special a breakfast together, a potluck breakfast, and there's more information about that in your bulletins. That's always one of my favorite times of the year as our church comes together to celebrate the Lord's resurrection together. And so I hope you're looking forward to that as well. Luke chapter 10, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've arrived in verse 10 of Luke chapter 10. And we're actually going to begin, and if you would stand with me as we read together, we're actually going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 16 as we look at God's Word together this morning and Jesus' words to his, the 72 who he sends out to proclaim the gospel, the good news of his coming kingdom. We begin in verse 1, and I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Then we come to verse 10 that we're going to begin looking at this morning. But. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town." Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You may be seated and may be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you that you have opened it to us. And we pray that our hearts would be very sensitive to the things you teach us in it. And our hearts would be humble as we see these great truths contained therein. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. At our church, we do something called expositional preaching, expository preaching. And what that means simply is 
that at our church, we, as we proclaim God's Word, we take a large section of Scripture, like a book of the Bible, and we just systematically work our way through it passage after passage. And I'm very grateful that our church is an expositional preaching church, that the church allows me to do that, and the elders encourage me to do that, and you as a congregation encourages me in that. And one of the reasons that I'm glad for that is because of a passage like Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 16. This is a passage that deals with God's wrath, God's judgment, the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel, the consequences of turning one's back on the gospel message of Jesus Christ, of refusing to believe the good news about Jesus Christ. And this is not a passage, perhaps on my own, if I was just picking out passages of Scripture that I want to talk to you about, this probably would not be one of them. The truths in here are hard truths. This week, as I've been thinking about what I'm going to say and how we're going to go through Luke chapter 10 and these verses, and I was reminded of something that happened to the prophet Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to preach judgment, to proclaim his judgment. And Jeremiah goes to the kingdom of Judah, and he proclaims God's coming judgment on them. And it wasn't a very popular message. Not a lot of people like to be told that God's wrath is directed against them. And so Jeremiah was not Mr. Popular. In fact, throughout the whole book of Jeremiah, we only see two people respond positively to his message. And at one point in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is is thinking about what God has called him to proclaim. And Jeremiah says, Lord, you've deceived me. I was deceived. I've, I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. He says, God, every time I speak your word, every time I tell people what you want me to tell them, I'm shouting out violence and destruction. That's not a very fun message to proclaim, God. And then he says, but the alternative to proclaiming God's word is to not proclaim God's word, right? He says this. He says, but if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. He says, if I, if I say, well, I'm, not, I'm just not going to talk about God and, and his coming wrath and judgment, he says, it's like there's a fire within me, and I must proclaim it. I feel that's the situation that we're in this morning as well. This is a very hard text to consider. It's very hard to think about the ramifications, the eternal ramifications and consequences of rejecting the gospel, that, but that's what this text talks about. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 30, verse 5, where it says what? Every word of the Lord is true. Every word of God is, is precious. And even those hard truths that contain God's judgment are precious truths for us to cling to and consider and think about. I told you a few weeks ago that I was going to mention a book that's been written recently, and I'm going to mention it again this morning. Uh, The book is entitled Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. And it's by a a man named Rob Bell, a pastor uh, named Rob Bell, a pastor and author. I disagree very strongly with the conclusions that he comes to in this book called Love Wins. One part of the book, kind of the general thesis of the book is he's saying, look, hell, our traditional, and I would say the biblical understanding of hell, he says is, is wrong. The traditional understanding of hell is wrong. 
He says, we understand that the character of God is that God is loving. And because God is loving and because God is powerful, ultimately, God will get what he wants and, and no one will face eternal wrath. No one will face God's eternal judgment. That's kind of his position in the book. And he acknowledges, he says, yeah, I understand that there are uh, temporal consequences for rejecting the gospel. I understand that there are consequences here and now for not accepting the good news about Jesus Christ. For example, he says, uh, he says essentially hell is a reality we make for ourselves. He says hell is our refusal to trust God's retelling of our story. In other words, God says to live this way, and we choose to live this way, and as we choose to live this way instead of the way that God tells us to live, we're experiencing hell. He talks about, for example, uh, the children in Rwanda during the genocide there, those who had their, their hands and feet cut off, and he says that's, that's a, a, a taste of hell. That's hell. That's not experiencing relationship with God, living the way that God tells you to. And in that sense, uh, Bell is absolutely right. That is a, a taste of being separated from relationship with God. And yet, where Bell is tragically wrong in this book is failing to understand that the consequences for rejecting God here in this life have eternal consequences. What you do right now in this life with the good news of Jesus Christ, the peace that God has proclaimed to you through Jesus Christ, what you do with that message, the sobering reality is, has eternal consequences. There's an interview that Martin Bashir from MSNBC News did with Bell, and he asked him several times about this issue. He said, you know, are you a, a, a universalist? This is Bashir, the uh, guy from MSNBC talking to Rob Bell. He says, are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth? And Bell says, no, no, I think it's important how you respond to Jesus Christ on earth. And Bashir goes on, he says, okay, but is it irrelevant and is it immaterial about how one responds to Christ in this life in terms of determining one's eternal destiny? Is that immaterial? And Bell again says, no, it's important. And Bashir says, okay, I get that but what you're saying doesn't make sense. Is it irrelevant as to how you respond to Christ in your life now to determine your eternal destiny? Is that relevant? Is it immaterial? Bell again gives a, a non-answer, and so Bashir uh, for a, a fourth or fifth time says, what I'm asking is, is it irrelevant and immaterial how you respond to Christ now to determine your eternal destiny, relevant or irrelevant? Does it have a bearing or does it have no bearing? Bashir, in his interview with, with Rob Bell, gets the issue right on the head. If Bell is correct, if Bell is correct that there is not a, a place of eternal conscious torment and that God's love eventually wins, then that has incredible ramifications on how we respond to Jesus Christ now. But if Scripture is correct, if Scripture is correct in what it teaches us about how we need to respond to the gospel now, then the, again, sobering reality is that how you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ right now affects your eternal destiny. There are ramifications far beyond this life for how you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a huge issue in the evangelical world right now. And honestly, what I believe has happened I believe that the church 
has for quite some time failed to adequately proclaim the whole counsel of God. We've been a little bit scared to talk about God's judgment and about God's wrath, and we've been scared to talk about hell, and so a book comes along or a teaching comes along, and it says something about hell, it says something about God's wrath, and it throws in some Bible verses there, and because God's church isn't prepared to understand what God's word says about hell and judgment and why it exists and how it relates to the character of God, because we're unprepared, we're led astray by false teaching. And so what I want us to do this morning, and again, we're going to come back to this passage in two weeks after Easter. Uh, there's, there's a lot here, and we're going to take our time as we go through it. What I want us to do this morning and in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll finish in two weeks, is I want us to talk about four statements, four statements that help us understand the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel. And I hope this will instill within you a, a fear of, of what it means to reject the gospel in your own life and in the lives of other, or others around you, and it will give you a, a sense that, hey, I need to be bold in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and helping people understand that there are real, eternal consequences for rejecting the gospel. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this week and in a few weeks as we think about the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel. So let's look at the first statement and this first statement, uh, we're, we're not even going to get all the way through both of the first two statements this morning. Uh, we're going to look a lot at the second statement and some other, other truths related to it. But the first statement, I've, I've already altered. This morning I was kind of thinking through this, and I thought, you know what, I don't like the way that's worded. And so if you're taking notes, good for you. Uh, you should be. You know, there's, we're going to talk about degrees of reward in heaven, and I think those, I don't know that for sure. It's your hard attitude to respond to God's word. And a good Heart attitude uh, response to God's word might be taking notes. Uh, I've, I, as I was thinking through the notes this morning, I, I thought, you know, I don't like my first, I'm going to reword it. So here's, here's the way I've, I've reworded it here. Uh, the first thing that we need to think about as we think about the eternal consequences of rejecting gospel is this. A people, a people need to know, a people need to know if they are rejecting the gospel. That's point one. People need to know if they are, if they have rejected the gospel warn them, okay? People need to know if they have rejected the gospel, warn them. And my point here is that sometimes people don't even know that there's a gospel message that they've rejected. Look at the text with me, if you would. Now, remember the context. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus has been calling these 72 disciples, these 72 followers of him, to go out and proclaim the good news. He, they're to go out and they're to proclaim that God's kingdom is coming. They're to call people to repent and they're to proclaim God's coming peace. That's the message that they're called and tasked with proclaiming. Now you come to verse 10 and verse 10 tells us what to do if people don't respond positively to that message. If they reject it, verse 10 says this, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. What Jesus is asking them to do is something very offensive. Jews, as they would travel through a Samaritan town, remember we talked about this in Luke chapter 9, would wipe off the dust of their feet as they left a Samaritan community. Remember, the Samaritans are those in the northern part of Israel during the, the time of captivity, they've been carried away, uh, the northern kingdom had been carried away into captivity, captivity by Samaria, and or, uh, by, by Syria, they were, remained there in the Samaritan region, and they intermarried with other people, 
other nationalities who worshipped different gods. And the Samaritans began to worship other gods as well. And whenever they returned to the Jewish faith, they didn't return to the full Jewish faith. They simply said, okay, we're going to take the first five books of the Bible. We're going to say that's our, our canon, that's our scripture. And they rejected the rest of the prophets and their testimony. And so the Jewish person looked at the Samaritan and said, look, you're not of us. And sometimes the Samaritans would say, yes, we are. And sometimes, depending upon the political climate, they would say, no, we're not. But what a Jew understood is that it needed to be communicated to the Samaritans that they were not part of them. And so as a Jew left a Samaritan town, they would say, you are not a part of us. We have nothing in common with you. And we wipe even your dust off our sandals in protest against you. We are not one. Even though you may say some similar things about God, that doesn't mean we worship the same God. And that act of protest as they left a Samaritan community was meant to communicate that. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying as you go into a town and you proclaim to other Jews that I am the Messiah and that God's kingdom is coming, as you proclaim that message, if people receive you and receive that message of peace, your peace will be upon them. But if you come to that community and they reject that message that God's kingdom is coming and that it's coming through me, you are to communicate to them that you have nothing in common with them anymore. This is a radical statement. And think about all the similarities that existed between these 72 people and the communities of Jews that they were going out to proclaim the message of peace to. They still worshipped a God they called Yahweh God. They still spoke the same language. They still had all the same uh, scriptures that they held in common. They believed all the same prophets. They had the same cultural heritage. They believed many, 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 many things that were exactly the same. In fact, there's only one identifiable difference between the Jews that were in these communities and these 72 Jews that were proclaiming God's coming kingdom. One difference. And that was the acceptance of Jesus Christ as the one who was going to bring God's peace, God's shalom, his kingdom. One one minor difference, right? And Jesus says, how a community, how a person responds to me is of such importance that if they fail to receive me as the Messiah, you're to say, we have nothing in common with you any longer. You have rejected God's purpose for you. We are separated. That was an unthinkable thing to do. It was highly offensive. It was a watershed moment. So think about the controversies that I've experienced in ministry. By God's grace, they've been relatively few. But all of them that I can think of just off the top of my head in terms of of controversies I've been embroiled in and in the community or whatever, they've come back to the gospel. In other words, it's been me saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable praying with this large group of people because I'm not confident we're worshiping the same God. You know, I've been asked to, to pray at different types of events. And I've said, look, 
I'm not going to come together in this big interfaith service, even among other Christians sometimes, because there are groups here that have a fundamental difference of understanding about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And as I've said those things, that is a highly offensive thing to say, isn't it? What you're saying to a person is, look, you may name the name of Jesus Christ, but your understanding of who Jesus Christ is and his work on the cross is fundamentally different than my own, and I'm not confident, I'm not confident that you're in a right relationship with God. I remember I was at a, a banquet one time, and a little luncheon, and we were kind of sitting around a table, and we were talking about the different ministries we were involved in, and, and uh, one young lady said that she was involved, she and this other uh, guy that w- both worked for the same evangelical organization. And this evangelical organization's job was to proclaim the gospel to youth. Okay? And we're talking about uh, these, where we go to church and the, the jobs we're involved in, the ministries we're involved in, and, and she said that she goes to a, a Roman Catholic church. I said, you know, that, that's very interesting to me. I, I believe that, that there are Roman Catholic believers. I said, but I believe that you're, the Roman Catholic Church teaches a gospel that's fundamentally different than the gospel we find in Scripture. I said, I believe that Scripture teaches that a person can come into faith, can come into re- to relationship with God through faith and can have a relationship with God and be confident of their relationship with God because of their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, and that can happen immediately. I said, my understanding is that the Roman Catholic Church teaches something different to that. And so I said, so my my question would be, how do you communicate the gospel to other children that you're ministering to, and what do you personally believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You would have thought that I had just picked up the table and thrown everything on the, the floor, Everyone at that table was just highly offended that I would even question the gospel understanding of another person that named the name of Jesus Christ. But here is the important truth that I think we find in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. People need to know if they have rejected the gospel message. And what Jesus is telling these disciples to do, these 72 disciples to do, is look, you need to let people know that their assumption that things are right with them in God is wrong. Depending on how they respond to me, they may not have a right relationship with God. And uh, brothers and sisters, I say the same thing to you and me as we interact with the larger Christian community and other communities of faith. People need to understand that there is one way that God tells us that we can have a right relationship with him, and that's through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You say, you know what, we believe so many things that are the same with, with this person or this group or this individual, and that, that's fine, that's great. However, the issue is how a person responds to the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, look, we agree on 95% of the, the moral issues in our day. Great, what do we believe about the person of Jesus Christ? Because if you have rejected the truth, that faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is what saves you, then you have rejected the gospel. As we think about the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel, people need to know if they have done that. It's very interesting. The the disciples are to go and they're to proclaim this on the street, and the word that he uses there kind of describes a main thoroughfare. It's kind of like standing in the town square and saying, look, we just want everyone in this community to know we don't consider you in right relationship with God. And then he says this, 
that the disciples are to say, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, look, it doesn't matter what you think about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's come near regardless of how you respond. Again, that would be highly offensive to a Jewish person. The idea that God's kingdom could come and be established apart from ethnic Israel recognizing it was shocking. And yet Jesus says that his disciples are to say, it doesn't matter how you respond in terms of God's coming kingdom. It's going to come regardless. You need to decide whether or not you accept that truth. Here's the application for you and and me. There are people in our lives who don't understand the gospel, who don't understand the exclusive claims of Christ. There are people around you who just assume that the relationship with God is fine, and, and God's calling on your life and my life is to be very careful that the people around us know the gospel and know whether or not they've rejected it. Perhaps there are, are co-workers you have or friends at school or, or people that you have a, a relationship with in your family, and you've said, boy, I've just really struggled in knowing how to present the gospel to them, they just assume that things are right with them and God. And Jesus calls his 72 followers here to make a very difficult stand, and he calls you and I to make a very difficult stand as well, to ask people, do you understand the gospel? Do you know that a person passes from death to life not on the basis of their works, not on the basis of their parents' works, not on the basis of church attendance, but on the basis of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel message. That's the first statement I want us to think about as we think about the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel, that people need to know if they have rejected the gospel, warn them. Secondly, second statement here, this is hard, hard truth. People who do not receive the gospel will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. Warn them. People who do not receive the gospel will face God's wrath on the day of judgment. Warn them. You say, boy, that's so arrogant. How can you say that? Well, I I can't say it. God says it. Look at verse 12. He says, I tell you, he's talking about these communities that have rejected the gospel. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. There is a lot of meat in those verses, isn't there? Let's kind of talk through them just a little bit, and then we're going to look at some principles of the day of judgment of God. But first of all, notice this. He mentions, uh, as he talks about these communities, he says, I I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What does he mean? Well, if you remember, Genesis 18 and 19 describe the great wickedness of the town of Sodom. And Sodom becomes kind of a stereotypical city for for wickedness. 
Isaiah 1, wickedness and God's judgment on wickedness. You think of Sodom, if you're a Jew, you think of Sodom, you think of a wicked city that was proud of their wickedness and faced God's judgment because of their pride in their wickedness and because of their wickedness. Example, Isaiah 1, 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah 3, 9, he's talking about Judah and Jerusalem. He's talking about how their deeds are against the Lord. He says, your deeds defy God's glorious presence. And then in verse 9 of Isaiah 3, he says, for the look on their faces, this is the look on Judah's face, the people of Judah's, their faces. He says, the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they've brought evil, God's judgment, on themselves. Isaiah 13, 19 says that Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord overthrew them. We see this idea that Sodom is a wicked city, an example of wickedness, continue to the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude 7, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So if you're a Jewish person that Jesus is speaking to, and you think about Sodom, you think about wickedness. It's the stereotypical wicked city. You know, you think about a rocket scientist. What is a rocket scientist? He's what? Or she is brilliant. You think about a a politician. What's a politician? Crooked, right? You think about a pastor. What's a pastor? That's right, good looking. That's stereotype that just pops to the mind, right? Well, you think of Sodom, what do you think of? You think of wickedness and God's judgment. And, And Jesus is saying something rather remarkable. These towns that our Jewish communities are going to find the day of judgment less bearable than the wicked city of Sodom. That's, again, unthinkable for the Jewish mind. These are radical things that Jesus is communicating here. That day is a very interesting expression. That day is a reference in in Jewish thought. It refers to this, this time of the culmination of all things, when when righteousness and wickedness are all dealt with, things kind of get, get uh, dealt with in the last day. It's this time at the end of time where God's judgment is meted out and those who are opposed to God suffer the consequences and those who are on God's side receive reward. Let me give you a couple passages that talk about that day. That day is an extremely important concept. And again, I think one of the reasons that we don't understand the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel because we don't understand Scripture. Let me just give you a couple verses. Zechariah 12, 3 through 4. God says, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Jeremiah 38 says, It will come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. Isaiah 10, 20 says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. Matthew 7, 22, Jesus speaks of that day and the judgment that's going to come there. 2 Timothy, over and over again, Paul talks about that day. He says, I'm, I'm confident that Jesus is able to guard until that day what I've entrusted to him. 
2 Timothy 1.18 says, May the Lord grant Onesiphorus to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know what services he rendered to me at Ephesus. Over and over again, that day refers to this time in which all things will be dealt with and justice will be served. And he goes on, and throughout this passage, these, these verses here, he's saying that on that day, there's going to be coming consequences to those who have rejected the gospel of God. Other Galilean towns are going to face God's wrath, whereas wicked cities like Tyre and Sidon also will experience God's wrath, but will experience less of it, and we'll talk about why more next time we talk about this passage. But here's what I want to do. Like I said, there's a lot of meat in these verses, and what I want to do is just walk through some truths about that day, about God's judgment. If you look on the back of your bulletin, there's just 11 truths that I want us to consider about the day of God's judgment, about the judgment of God. And we're not going to get through all of them even this morning, but Lord willing, uh, next time we look at this passage, we will. Let me just talk about the first truth about the day of judgment of God first. Uh, and by the way, my, my thoughts here are greatly influenced by uh, two books. Uh, one's Robert, well, Scripture, obviously, but these two books have helped me synthesize a lot of what Scripture teaches about God's judgment. One of them's by a man named Robert Culver. Uh, it's called Systematic Theology. And the other is by Wayne Grudem. And you, you're, you'll hear me refer to Wayne Grudem frequently in our time together. Uh, his book, Systematic Theology. And in fact, if, if you're just going to buy one book this year, um, make it my book. If you're going to buy two books this year, I'm kidding. If you're, if you're going to buy a book that you want to really help you understand uh, Scripture, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is a, is a great resource. But anyway, the first truth is this. The first truth about the day of judgment of God is, and it's on the back of your bulletin, there's a coming day of judgment for all people. The judgment of God, the first thing to think about is there's a coming day of judgment for all people. If you want to jot down Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 describes this reality. Let me read just a portion of that to you. He's, he's talking about God's judgment coming and talking about those who judge others, how they're going to receive God's judgment. Then verse 6 of Romans chapter 2 tells us that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Okay, so some people are going to be judged by God, receive eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He goes on, verse 11, God shows no partiality. Here's the essential truth that all of us need to recognize. There is a coming day of judgment for all people. Think about the injustice that exists in this world. Things aren't quite the way that they're supposed to be. Things aren't balanced. Wickedness abounds. I was reading this past week in the Wall Street Journal, uh, on Mar the March 14th edition, I believe. April 14th edition. And uh, it, it talked about this, this town near the city of Philadelphia. And in 1832, there were a group of newly arrived Irish workers working on this, this track of railroad near this, this town near Philadelphia. And there were 70, about 70 of them working on this. And uh, all 70 of them died. And they believed they had died from the cholera epidemic that was, that was sweeping across well, really globally at the time. They've recently found evidence that perhaps these 70 workers were murdered 
that the town feared that they were carrying the cholera epidemic and, and it had killed them in order to, to wipe out the potential of them getting cholera. Now, we don't know. It happened in 1832. They're kind of examining the, the area and trying to find some, some remains. And, but most likely, we don't know for sure what happened. History, human history, is full of example after example after example of injustice and murder and harm against children and, and women and, and the, those who are, who are uh, weaker in our society, that the poor. But scripture tells us that it's right to be bothered by those things. And there's something that perhaps you've told yourself or you've told your children, life isn't fair, and that's exactly true. And yet, there is coming a day when a God who is more passionate about justice than you and I are, when a God who is passionate about justice is going to deal with the injustices that have taken place across the span of human history. Colossians 3.25 says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality with God. Justice is an essential aspect of God's character, and there is coming that day in the future where all injustice will be dealt with. That's an essential truth to understand. Yes, God is a loving God, but God is a God who is also passionate about justice, and there is a coming day of judgment for who? All people. Second truth to think about, second truth is this, Christ will judge all people. Christ will be the one who judges all people, and a lot of times you may hear people say, you know, I wish Christians were more like Jesus, because Christians judge, and, and Jesus doesn't judge. Really? <laughs> really? There's, there's some verses that those people need to consider. For example, in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, we see that Christ will judge underneath the authority of his, his Father, God the Father. Verse 26 says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him, that is, God has given the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Acts 10.42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, again, that's Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17.31, he has fixed a day, and remember that day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom to preach the word. In other words, just as sure as Christ's resurrection is Christ's coming judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. Just as sure as God's coming kingdom is the judgment that precedes the establishment of that eternal kingdom. There is a coming day of judgment for all people, Scripture teaches us, and Christ will judge all people. A third truth is this. The third truth that I want us to think about is that Christ will judge unbelievers on the basis of their deeds. If you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 20, I'd encourage you to do so. Revelation, last book of the Bible, Revelation 20. 
He describes a, a thousand-year reign, the what we call the millennial kingdom. And I would believe that this millennial kingdom takes place before eternity begins. Satan is bound. There's this thousand years of peace. Then, then uh, Satan is unleashed again. There's further rebellion. Then verse 11 of Revelation 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Let me read that again. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then there's a very important book. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. He goes on and he says, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Someday, Christ, the perfect righteous judge, is going to judge all of humanity. And unbelievers are going to be judged on the basis of their deeds what they have done. These books are open. Their life is presented before God and apart from God's grace, apart from being found with one's name written in the book of life, one suffers the eternal consequences of rejecting the gospel. Christ will judge unbelievers on the basis of their deeds. Let me just very quickly say the fourth truth and touch on the fifth. The fourth truth about the judgment of God is that unbelievers will assist in that judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 should affect us in very profound ways. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Believers, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, will assist in Christ's judgment in some way. And I don't understand how that works out, but I think that should really help us as we think about how to interact with people built today. In other words, right now is not the time when Christ's judgment has come upon the earth in its fullness. And our job right now isn't to go around judging other people and, and talking about, about uh, just how, how terrible you are and, and how, how great I am. But instead, our task is to say, look, here's God's coming judgment. We don't want you to experience this. This is what God's word says, not what I say. And please accept the gospel. Turn from sin, turn to faith in Jesus Christ. It should affect how we feel about others having wronged us. It's with good reason that Scripture tells us that, that, that God says, vengeance is mine, right? Oftentimes our tendency as people wrong us, as people do things to us, is to, to want to seek vengeance and to, to show people that we're right and they're wrong. That's not our job right now. Right now our job is to call people to repentance and not take into account wrongs suffered against us. I'd like to talk more about that, but let me very quickly say number five here. Believers, believers will not face God's condemnation. It's very important to understand this. I do believe that Christians are going to be called to account for their deeds. Believers are, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are still, we'll talk more about this in two weeks, are still going to have to give an account for what they've done that should fill us with some holy fear. And yet, understand this, Romans 8.1 tells us very clearly, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
a believer, a person who's repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation will not experience God's wrath and his eternal judgment. We'll talk about how the different truths that we've presented today kind of go together more next week. But here's the thought I want you to kind of ponder as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. In fact, if the men who are going to be passing out the elements would begin to make their way to the sides, don't pass out uh, things yet, but if you just begin, uh, if our elders, deacons, and other servants would begin making their way. Here's the thought I want you to meditate on as we prepare to take communion. That day, the day of God's wrath, is a terrible day. The Lord our God is a consuming fire, and none of us want to experience the wrath of God. All of us deserve to have experienced the wrath of God. And if what I've said is true, that God is a God that loves justice, why isn't God's justice and his wrath going to be poured out upon us? And there is one answer, isn't there? Because of the person, Jesus Christ. And I want you, as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, to spend a moment meditating in the quietness of your heart, the depth of love that God had for you in sending his son, Jesus Christ, and the depth, the degree of punishment that Christ suffered in my place and in your place. Just spend a moment and think through that as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper.